Well, you can talk about films with a philosopher's zeal, or measure them all by box office appeal. But for once in your life, be real. Welcome, one and all, to a very special edition of Be Real, guys. I'm Noah Ballard, joined as always by Chance Solem Pfeiffer, and today we have a very special guest on the program, Mr. Brent Rivers, high school English teacher, one of my best bros from high school. And the reason that he's on the podcast today is that he has no choice. For the <laughs> past for the past five days, Brent and I have been living as a couple here at an all-inclusive Mexican resort here in Playa del Carmen. And so together we watched these three movies, aptly genred Americans in Mexico, to sort of you know, lead into some interesting anecdotes about our travels. Um, and also just, that's how I understand things is through movies. <laughs> so it was, it's been a rewarding experience, but chance, how are you? I'm fine. I didn't know I was going to have to deal with anecdotes, but I'll steal myself for those. Oh, that's um, why, I mean, that's why we're recording from the Ocean Maya Royale here in, in Playa del Carmen. Yeah. So, Brent, how are you? How has the week been treating you? Uh, this week has been excellent. Uh, I don't think I really went through anything that any of the characters in these movies have gone through. So that's uh, definitely a comforting feeling. Yeah. Um, right. That's good. Yeah. But, uh, no, I've, I'm excited to talk about some of these movies because, well, boy, there's uh, quite a range, I think, of uh, of... Of, of experiences in Mexico. So the three movies that we're uh, watching, or that we did watch and are discussing, are The Three Amigos, the uh, Steve Martin, Martin Short, Chevy Chase comedy from 1986. Um, the Mexican, the 2001 Brad Pitt, Julia Roberts rom-com western, sort of? Question mark. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Traffic, the uh, two and a half hour... Steven Soderbergh, uh, three, three-headed drug war epic. <laughs> so, can't wait to get into that. And I think that came out in 2000. Does that sound yeah. right? Yeah. Nice. Um, so Noah has suggested the strategy of going from least serious to most serious. So I think that means we're definitely starting with the three white guys in the sequins mariachi band type <laughs> costumes. And uh, 1986's Three Amigos. Three Amigos. They were the biggest stars of their day. The Three Amigos are history. But that was yesterday. Look, boys, I know show business. Something always turns up. Telegram for the Three Amigos. How should we tackle this? So you, I saw well, this movie when I was a little kid and loved it and have not thought you. about it since. I was going to ask you if you'd seen this before because I had not. Have, Brent, have you seen this? Uh, this is the first time for me. So this is the first time for both of us. And if you can just imagine the way in which we watched it, <laughs> this is at like the end of the day, like after drinking for nearly 14 straight <laughs> hours and like just like, pull, like just shoveling Mexican food into our faces like at given intervals. 
We made it through the whole thing, though. It definitely kept our attention. It's the only movie we didn't take a nap during and then have to go back and rewatch it from a point that we both remembered. Oh, it's also by far the shortest. From yeah, that's yeah. Right. Um, so, I'm sorry, when you ask uh, Three Amigos question mark, did you also include an upside down question mark? In oh, of course. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, yeah, so yeah, I just saw it when I was a little kid. I loved, I watched every John Wayne Western I could get my hands on. So I think I loved the sort of vaguest mockery of Hollywood Westerns. Mm -hmm. um, right. The mockery and then the fact that it sort of became an action movie briefly <laughs> itself. Yeah. Um, but reapproaching it, I, I hadn't thought of it in years. I don't um, think many people have. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think so either. Um, probably the people who've made it are not thinking too hard about it either no, these days. I doubt um, it. So it's set in, what is it, 1918? 1915. 1915. And we pick up in Mexico where this woman is looking for a way in which to defend her, her hometown, which is be under siege by this... El Guapo. El Guapo, this villain, this... of warlord. like the He was a warlord, a horsebacked six-shooter warlord. Kind of and a Pancho Villa knockoff. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so she's looking for a way to stop this, this El Guapo, and she stumbles into a screening of The Three Amigos, which is a movie series, a short series, of uh, black and white film reel thing of these three guys stopping crimes in Mexico. And they, she sort of doesn't understand the construct of cinema, so she writes to the three amigos in Hollywood and says, we need your help, but she phrases it in a way. And after there's some translation and there's like her having to cut out a few words because she can't afford to send the telegram that we then cut to Los Angeles where the three amigos who have just been fired or they, they lose their jobs as movie stars and desperately need the money. So they go down to Mexico for what they think is a performance of what they can do. Yes. And the hilarity ensues over this stranger comes to town uh, mistaken identity drama. Yeah, it kind of a proto Tropic Thunder, I would say. Well, that's what, that yeah. was the first thing that we discussed after Tropic or after watching this was that how similar it was to Tropic Thunder. Yeah, but yes. that we did find that unlike Tropic Thunder, it seemed a little less focused on really lampooning the film industry. Like Tropic Thunder right. was, I think, very film heavy. This it really just kind of uses it at, to kind of get you out the door and to give like the shortest cameos ever to Phil Hartman and John Lovitz. Like <laughs> very just, short. just um, two or three lines a piece, and then we're moving right along. Take Absolutely. the Amigos' clothes, part over. <laughs> but then I thought it was funny the difference between this movie and Tropic Thunder is just sort of like the cynicism it had about these actors. Whereas, like, mm -hmm. and Brent and I talked about this a bit, like, they may not be good gunfighters, but they're certainly, like, really talented entertainers. Like, sure. they can, like, jump onto horses, and they can, like, recite these lines, and they can do these really interesting dance routines. So they're, like, very talented. And uh, Martin Short, like, is probably one of the fastest, like, quick-draw people, but he has <laughs> never used it in the context of being, like, a gunfighter. Right. This is Whereas true. I feel like in Tropic Thunder, it's sort of proving the point that they're all sort of, like, drug addict, egomaniac <laughs> people who, like, don't actually have any skills. In your state in which you watched it, how much did you laugh at the sort of kind of just repeated... I think, for me, 
this movie has kind of one joke and it's sort of general ineptness on all sides and i want to know how funny you guys found that or didn't find it <laughs> see I, I laughed so much during this movie i think this is the hardest i've laughed at a movie in years uh i agree that like, my god yeah that's that's the saddest thing you've ever heard right okay thank you <laughs> yeah like, I thought the My Little Buttercup scene was, like, one of the funniest scenes I've ever seen. <laughs> just, like, how much that these guys are buying into this dance routine and just how, like, how just, like, flamboyant it is in the context mm-hmm. of how, like, very serious the patrons are of this establishment and, like, what has happened before they got there. And mm-hmm. I think that's this movie's strength is it knows how to set up the few jokes it does have. In, like, a pretty interesting way. Brent? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I'm kind of right there with you. I mean, I, in some ways. I mean, I think the gags, when they are gags, they're awesome. Like, like, uh, like that moment there, right, where they're doing the song or where he's on top of the ledge, like, trying to make different bird calls. Like, <laughs> the shtick is so good. But the plot, it, it, like, there's, there's no comedy that really comes from anything that also develops story. Well, like, that's that's the that's thing. True. That is the shortcoming of the movie is that they, yeah. it isn't a movie. It's just a series <laughs> of like setups to very funny. I thought either sight or like sort of social gags. Like yeah. I just love. Like I have watched it a couple times on YouTube uh, since we watched this movie, but I'm still laughing in my head at. Chevy Chase struggling with this like burrito and then he just looks up after these people have like generously invited him into their homes or into their home and he goes do you have anything besides Mexican food (laughs) yeah Chevy Chase being a huge asshole is I mean I think the canteen gag is pretty good too yeah because he's just such an asshole or the uh I could kiss me on the lips or Uh, yeah yeah when, when she's when she's like uh Will you kiss me? And he's like, here? She's like, well, we could go for a walk and you could kiss me on the veranda. And he just says, no, lips will be fine. <laughs> like, like that's a, that is a great gag. But uh, like, but really only good as a gag and definitely not right. good as any kind of like, oh, good, now they're together. Like, no, no that's not even, it's gone. It's not, you know, it's, it, it doesn't really follow through on anything other than gags. I mean, Brent, you mentioned the shortcoming with story, but it also leads to a pretty serious shortcoming with character because, you know, everyone is an idiot. Like, there's no, unlike uh, the other, I mean, we've watched two of the Vacation movies as of late, which is like same sort of era, also with Chevy Chase. And the side characters are so important in those movies because they're always Mm. sort of the people who like make a fool out of Clark Griswold. And everyone in this movie is a fool. Like, the movie happens because a woman doesn't understand the concept of movies in Mm. a church screening where presumably like everyone in the audience does so it's it's i don't know she was just in from the small town well but but and also like even then in from the big town also just a misunderstanding that they're going to make money for perform like infamous is like the big gag that they don't know what the word infamous means (laughs) so they think they're going to get really famous there like you're right i mean the like and i think there's almost a joke about it in there where she's like i like the smart one and they kind of both like kind of look at each other like (laughs) the the one who's not so bright the one who's not so bright that's yeah which one yeah (laughs) but 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 again like it works as a great gag in that one moment but like does not give you a lot of steam to really push the rest of the narrative through right agreed but can, um, I, can i also sort of pick at this movie too where it, it just so the, the movie i mean other than being like a farce is like pretty it, it like exists within this world right 
for the most part. And then there's that bizarre, like, vision quest they go on with the singing bush and the invisible swordsman. So much. <laughs> like, what is... And then they end up, like, that just ends up being a scene that, like, takes them out into the desert. Like, it doesn't even matter. Yeah. The production is uh, somewhere between weird and flailing. The, <laughs> that campfire scene where you can very clearly see the guy with the boom mic behind the camp, like the <laughs> cactus. And then at the end, it doesn't explain where they got guns. It doesn't explain if the Amigos are okay with, like, killing, like, dozens of people. It's just sort of, like, it just happens. It's just a movie that happens. Yeah. But it happens so, it happens so well. I don't know. People love the the Amigo salute. Um, it didn't make sense to me that that's sort of like one of the few like more lascivious things in the movie. They're not like really sexy guys, like <laughs> other than that. But like that's a completely like weird, like naughty anachronism. I just didn't make any sense to me, and I was bored, <laughs> and I should have watched it with you guys. So I'm, I'm not feeling great about this like, one. The, just the writing of the jokes is just so funny. Like when they're eating those bats, and he goes, "Are you gonna eat your wig?" <laughs> oh my God. I, I don't know, man. <laughs> and just like the, the just the uh, if not like the quality of them, just the abundance of sight gags, like within every shot. Like there's just a constant like over the top amount of animals everywhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, the canteen thing I thought was really funny. Their outfits in general are just, like, very, very funny. How they're always... They don't actually get any dirt on them. They're all, like, perfectly pressed. Right. I don't yeah. know. For me, I, I feel kind of almost that it, there were not enough gags for me to, like, probably ever watch this movie again. Um, <laughs> like, I definitely enjoyed the experience of watching it. And there are, like, so, like yeah, maybe I'll watch that Buttercup scene, like, just by itself one day. You oh, know, yeah. like, because none of it really needs context. You know, once That's you've, true. like, figured out the very shallow conceit of the film, like, <laughs> pretty much everything that happens between then and the pretty shallow ending of that film is yeah. kind of inconsequential. But the pedigree of this movie, despite not having a very, like, solid concept or, like, a very, you know, thought-out plot. I mean, you have, like, Randy Newman and Elmer Bernstein, like, doing the score. You have John Landis before they took away his DGA card. Like, you have some pretty decent talent, like Lauren Michaels produced. I recognize the validity of that argument. What are you calling it? (sighs) I'm going to have to call it a soft good good. Oh, come on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's work our way down the ladder because, Brent, I can tell you're going to say bad good, yes? Yeah, yeah, I think, you know what? It might be bad good. It might not even... Quite it might naked. not be. You know, I think there are. I think there are moments. There are moments of this film that are good, good, but they do not total more than a minute of actual film. You know, like I, I think that ultimately it just comes down to bad, bad. That's a great point. All the good movies could be in a montage, Brent. I'm yeah. so glad you're yeah. here. I, I would watch the YouTube supercut of this film before ever watching this film again. There you go. Um, I'm going to be crabby. It's a bad, bad for me. Thank you. So we have a bad, bad, a bad, good, and a good, good? A good, good. It's a pretty a noticeable one. outlier. A soft, good, good. 
So if I if I knew somebody who was like kind of like sad and older, like in their like mid to late 30s and they were like, oh, I wish my kids could watch Animal House, but they can't. I would be like, hey, here's like a really sad way to settle. <laughs> you can watch this and your kids won't get in trouble for repeating it in school. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Um, and not even the teachers will probably get the reference because they're, <laughs> they're all like 26 years old. There you go. Oh, man. Well, shall we move from there to 2001's The Mexican? Yeah. Oh, yeah, and unless chance you're on a completely different like plane of existence from us, I don't think we'll have too much of an argument to make about this one. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, oh wow! Uh oh, that oh. does not I inspire could be confidence. Slightly between planes. What kind uh, of plane? There's well, only one plane. Well, why don't you tell us what happens in this movie? Because yeah, you explain <laughs> to us what the plot is of this film, and then we'll we'll render our decisions. Well, do you want me to explain the plot of the Brad Pitt movie or the Julia Roberts movie? <laughs> Too real. Okay, um, so this is a 2001 movie directed by Gore Verbinski uh, of Pirates Direction fame. Pirates of Mouse Hunt fame. Of Mouse Hunt, the Weatherman. Yes, those lesser fames. Um, this so is definitely infamous. like lighter Verbinski, though. Oh, yes, yes. Um, so Brad Pitt is like a, a fuck-up, Los Angeles-based... Um, I would just say he's basically like a courier. He does like non-violent jobs for a mobster. Sam was hoping to start her new life with Jerry. But there's been a sudden change in plans. You get your flight to Mexico. You pick up a pistol, bring the gun back to me. I was under the impression that the last job was my last job. This job will be your last job. If you get on that plane, you will never, ever see me again. If I don't go, I'm dead. But Brad Pitt is in this relationship with uh, Julia Roberts that's um, that's on the rocks. They're, you get the sense that they're always squabbling. Uh, and he promised her they would go to Vegas, so she's very pissed that he's going to Mexico. Uh, she basically ends the relationship, throws the shit out the window. He goes to Mexico. She goes to Vegas. This is where our two movies begin. Um, <laughs> Brad Pitt meets uh, the proprietor of the pistol, um, at least as it stands now, uh, David Krumholtz, in, in a bar. Uh, Krumholtz is, is agreeable, tells him a story about the pistol, dies um, from locals uh, shooting guns in the air, and it turns out that Krumholtz was dot, 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 the mobster's son? Grandson. Is that right? Grandson, that's right. The grandson, yeah. Um, and at this at this uh, same moment of his death and Brad Pitt scrambling around wondering what to do, calling his buddy J.K. Simmons back in L.A., um, the car gets stolen, the pistol gets stolen, and Brad Pitt has to go on a, a chase of Mexico to get it back. Um, in the Julia Roberts movie, she is eating in a Vegas food court when uh, a hitman makes an attempt on her life in the bathroom. That hitman is killed by another hitman, played by James Gandolfini. Um, and then those our first, two... Our first of two gay assassins. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, and so then those two begin... And he's also after the pistol. Um, and so they start on sort of a, uh, a very talky, psychoanalytic, pop psychology... Um, road trip. Oh, when Hitman met Sally? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, can men and women get... be friends? I don't know. I don't know. Can I, can I, I have a specific image I want to pitch you guys on if I can. Okay. I mean, so I'm imagining uh, contemporary directors around the turn of the century as sort of like a high school. Um, 
and uh, over in the theater department, the Coen brothers are kind of kind of killing it with their <laughs> with their style of movie. Um, they're becoming big things among the, you know the art kids and the punk kids and and people like that. And Gore Verbinski and his friends like Brad Pitt are like on the football team and they're like looking at the Coen brothers and they're like, we could fucking do that. Like, why don't we try that and see what happens? Does anyone have $50 million? Um, and I think that that's what this movie is. It is like the poppiest, broadest director, like trying to make kind of like a meta folktale. And it ends up so weird. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, it's like Quentin Tarantino minus Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> Yeah. Like that's what I think. It's it's like from dusk till dawn without like the interesting vampire stuff <laughs> or pulp fiction without the interesting narrative devices. That's interesting. And just worse writing. And, and not good. That's the other thing that contributes to But and then the other thing too is that I think that's a great point about the jocks versus like the theater kids, is that everyone in this movie is miscast. Every single person in this movie is not right for the role they're playing. It's very bad. Well, To be fair, though, some of them don't have an established role until two-thirds or three-quarters of the way through the film. Right. How could they have known to cast based on the entire film? Right. Interesting point. Um, no, I think you're right in terms of, uh, like, pedigree. Like, especially thinking, like, this is what, 2001? Right, so yeah. like even even like the fact that like James Gandolfini is your third build actor, and oh by the way, there's the show called The Sopranos that's killing it right now. You know, like mm -hmm. that's that is such power in that casting. I mean, like Brad Pitt and Julia Roberts. Also, like this is Both like pre Ocean's Eleven. You know, like this is this is like yeah. Ocean's Ten. Like this is like before that with like that much power behind it. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And then they also got no spoilers, but whatever. This movie's 15 years old. Um, <laughs> I forgot about this. They oh, yeah. got Gene Hackman to like. They got Gene Hackman to play like the Colonel Kurtz of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Colonel oh, Kurtz General the horror, Salazar part. The gun, the gun. Mm. Oh, who's oh. on my team, Brad? <laughs> yeah. So I think you're just you're, what you're describing. I'm gonna I'm gonna come I'm gonna come with you guys eventually. But let me just <laughs> come get on this over. In. The water's fine. We've been in the pool all day. We're here right now. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to like this because I think it's really funny when like non-artistic sort of studio folks, like whoever Vinsky is, like try to make like an auteur type movie. Um, even though he didn't write the script, but that's the type of movie it is. Um, <laughs> right. And I mean, I like that contradiction because I think it's funny and like this movie hmm. is for you if you like movie stars. And I also just like the idea that we're sort of missing nowadays of like taking the hottest like 30 something American movie stars and letting them play adults and just being like, just go somewhere and get into something. Like I feel like we... <laughs> We sort of lack that kind of like movie stardom for its own sake type movies today. So I wanted to like those things. What um, a Mexican apologist you are. <laughs> you know, you completely wrote off the three amigos for like, a, a, you know, justifiably very, so. very justifiable reasons. But for this one, you're like, oh, I wish there were more. And the contradiction, like a contradiction cannot carry an entire like two hour and three minute movie. That's an irresponsible <laughs> length for this film. A contradiction can carry my mentality. I'm taking toward it. But yeah, yeah, like yeah, down, yeah. down the stretch. 
um, down the stretch, there were two two roads diverged. <laughs> two, were they the two different narratives that this film was telling? One about That's Julia right. Roberts and one about yeah. Brad Pitt? That's right. And so, yeah, you end up with this thing where all the importance is on the Brad Pitt side and all of the feeling is on the Julia Roberts side. And we don't know how Brad Pitt cares if he cares about this gun, if he cares about Julia Roberts for most of the movie, and all she does is talk about him. Um, yeah, they're completely parallel. Yeah, good thing they're not all stock characters. <laughs> <laughs> then this movie would be really unforgivable. <laughs> I don't know. I thought I thought Brad Pitt. I mean, as far as a stock character, like you know, you you said that he's kind of this fuck up comi- er, uh, criminal, which I think he is definitely a fuck up criminal, which we see like reinforced by him dropping a gun like a thirteen times throughout this movie, where he'll just like right. have to hold it, and it'll just like oop, it slips out of his pocket, or like <laughs> I'm gonna shoot you, like oops, I dropped my gun, like it is pretty transparent as far as like the the characterization that this movie does, but I do think that he's at least kind of like tapping into his burn after reading character before burn after reading, which is I sure. think kind of interesting about like the, the Coen brothers esque comment that you made before in that like, yeah. clearly he is somebody who like wants to be a character actor in this movie, but the character that he both has been given and kind of has created for himself doesn't leave a lot of traction. No, no, it does not. I think that's a good, <laughs> that's a good read. Um, yeah. And I just, I was so bored once <laughs> Gandolfini and Roberts get in that car together. But then he just fucking dies and doesn't come back. That's so weird. Like, the only person who's been good to another person in this movie. Yeah, now, you, you can kind of imagine, like, Gore and Brad Pitt, like, sitting together being like, dude, you know how in every one of these movies, they kill the guy and he comes back at the end? Let's just have him kill him and it not be important. The whole thing was just a waste of time. It's artistic. <laughs> It was yeah. a great way to reveal exposition while we talked about your relationship with Brad Pitt for the oh, first hour Oh, you were just a movie. gay sounding board? Perfect. Let's yeah. kill you. Oh, man. Oh, I also man. think it's amazing that the it seems that the acting direction that Julia Roberts got was like, hey, Julia, you remember your uh, like, trashy person with the heart of gold from Pretty Woman? What if you didn't have the heart of gold? <laughs> But her and Brad Pitt have no... The movie hangs on her and Brad Pitt having chemistry, and they have none. Do we want to get into the uh, fabulistic riff on the Mexican standoff, or should we just kind of pass that by? Because the movie spends some time with that. Well, and that's kind of interesting, too, because in the way in which it's revealed throughout the film about this story about this gun, the titular Mexican, if you will. Um, the, oh, the, yeah, will. The, the, oh, oh, <laughs> oh, great. The, uh, it, it, it all of a sudden just cuts to this kind of old-timey film look. We lose color. We get kind of the flickering light. Um, and it kind of brings us back to literally the same visual aesthetic of Three Amigos. And right. not, uh, not yeah. the entire film, but like the film that exists within that film. Yeah. Um, and and one of the things that I think will be kind of cool to talk about with traffic is kind of how we see that kind of still coming up there as well. But sure. I just wonder, like, what is that? Um, well, I don't know. Like, Chance, you said you watched a lot of Westerns when you were younger and stuff like that. I mean, do, do you feel like that idea of, like, film happening within film is, like, even if it's kind of a kind of half-baked execution, you know, that idea that exists in both of these movies, why why do you think we would see that repeat? 
I mean, but that's the aesthetic they're going for, right? The the flicker of the reel as it's like playing on a projector in a public space. Right. Um, well, it's trying to bring us back to those early like silent films. Yeah. In well, I mean, tone. In some ways, these movies all sort of, I think, look at... Um, they want to have Western elements to them, like old West elements to them. And it kind of like Mexico is like the last frontier of that, given mm. that the United States is sort of like all all sort of updated and spoken for. I mean, I think they all like depend on that sort of uh, image that conjures an idea of authenticity. Um, I think that's, they depend on that to feel important, but I don't think it means anything in this movie. Well, I think that authenticity is like such a weird word. And I think especially like one of the things that exists undoubtedly between both of these two films and, you know, okay, you can say one's made in 1986, so it maybe gets a bit of a pass. And even 2001, like we thought very differently about movies, but the idea that like most of these Mexican characters in both of our first two films are totally Mexican caricatures. Like we have no really fully developed Mexican character pretty much at all. I mean, like, you know, we get cunning women, you know, in Three Amigos, but still mostly just kind of a stock character and kind of interesting that it's seen as like a something that sets her apart from a regular person, you know, like it's a weird yeah. quality there. But I, I, I think that, that that kind of older image, right, that older real kind of R-E-E-L of the of the be real guys real, mm-hmm. right, uh, that, that kind of reinforces this idea of like, oh, it's okay that like they were portraying these characters like that. That's how it used to be. That's just how old films were. You know, it, it, it does make us point. like very complicit in that. Well, I think that's and, also the point of the genre too. And like one of the reasons we wanted to look at it because like often, I mean, they all have the same conceit, right? There's this like very typically very white person coming into this someone else's home and someone else's traditions, but still the production crew of this movie was predominantly white people. So you're going to have like, even if, even if the person coming in is portrayed like as a fool or a usurper of some kind, it's still like, I mean, the only really like independent thinking Mexican character in the Mexican was like, the 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 car rental guy <laughs> who like wasn't actually doing anything wrong he was just giving them flashy cars and knew that they would get into trouble just because of that institution but was having a little fun within the means of his job do you guys think this is a bad bad movie i think this is oh, a pretty 100%. clear bad bad <laughs> Nothing soft about this response. No, this movie. So we put it on yesterday, and I maybe made it to David Crumholtz, and then I was like, "I'm out," and rolled over and took a three-hour nap. So yeah, bad, bad. All right. Well, uh, should we get to the the harrowing part? So Traffic is a 2001 film from Steven Soderbergh. It is an epic of a film, uh, two and a half hours, probably a little bit more. um, And it really masters that kind of storytelling technique of kind of layering in, folding in uh, multiple storylines that all are attacking a similar issue, a similar controversy. Uh, And so sometimes that can become a little bit preachy or that can be very um, kind of overdone, you know, 
very kind of deliberate and obvious, but um, Soderbergh just does it so well here. He's got a bunch of different characters in it. Uh, we've got Michael Douglas, who is both a wealthy father, uh, as well as the newly appointed drug czar. So he's kind of representing the U.S. federal government uh, in this kind of war on drugs. Of course, traffic, um, the whole involvement with Mexico uh, is involving uh, the Mer uh, American relationship with Mexico and this kind of drug trafficking uh, issue and the war on drugs. So Michael Douglas, again, whose character represents the U.S. federal government. Um, also, we are kind of dealing with him, uh, or, or excuse me, we're dealing with Catherine Zeta-Jones, uh, who very early on in the film, her husband, she's a very wealthy uh, socialite in San Diego with a kid in private school and a baby on the way and a nice fancy Mercedes. Uh, her husband is arrested as the head of a drug czar kind of ring. Um, as he is arrested, um, we have the cops who are played by Don Cheadle and uh, Luis Guzman. Oh, Luis Guzman. Oh, my gosh. Who are basically the ones who are kind of helping to kind of bring down this uh, kind of drug lord, uh, their DEA. Um, so, again, a lot of American side, but most of these characters kind of operating around the San Diego, Los Angeles area. Uh, the, on the other side of the border in Mexico, we do have Benicio del Toro, who plays a cop in Tijuana. Um, Tijuana. And Tijuana. And he um, is this kind of real paragon and kind of the moral heart of this film um, in that he is over and over again seen as someone who's not taking bribes, someone who really cares about the work, um, you know, believes very much in his country and his people and the, the kind of the, the kind of human experience that is here. Um, and he gets involved with a high ranking uh, army or military officer. It's the in, general, general, general Salazar. General Salazar in Mexico uh, as he kind of attempts to take out one of the big cartels in Mexico. Um, so as all of these characters are kind of going about their business, they're all kind of interacting with drugs in various ways, whether it's the, the large-scale trading of the uh, just dealership that's tra being trafficked across borders, um, or whether it's on a kind of more local level. Michael Douglas's daughter, played by Erica Christensen, um, uh, struggles with drug addiction herself. She and Topher Grace are these very kind of privileged, wealthy, high school rich kids, and focuses very much on their involvement with drugs and the ways that drugs um, kind of pervade their lives as well. So it's not just kind of a Mexican thing. Um, and then from there, it just kind of spirals. I mean, as it's obviously gone on for so long, even just like, the, that's just the premise of this movie. Um, right. You have just a lot of different storylines kind of folding together. Um, you've got a lot of really interesting narrative techniques and, and just a lot about this film that I'm really excited to talk about. Um, Chance, had you seen this movie before? I had uh, twice, I think. Um, and I love, if I could say, I love your use. Uh, I, spir spiraled is the right verb. And I think at the beginning when you were alluding to uh, examples of interwoven narratives that can be like more annoying. I think you're talking about yeah, movies like yes. Crash and Babel. Absolutely. Those are the exact examples. Yes. And How did you just say Babel? Babel, sorry. Babel. Babel is the uh, the bad album by uh, Mumford, Mumford and Sons, Sons? Who, who requested that it be pronounced Babel and not Babel <laughs> of the Tower's fame. Sorry. So. The thing that this movie does not have in common with those is even though the characters interact, I don't think Steven Soderbergh really cares how or when they meet each other. The way a movie like Crash, the whole idea is like, you will enjoy how interwoven this is. <laughs> These people are connected by virtue of the fact that they're in a whirlpool of futility and they're all mm -hmm. going to the same place. 
No, I would agree. I mean, in that way, it, it almost kind of reminds me of, again, 2001 here, where we're kind of also around the time when we're starting to see The Wire come up. So obviously, like, yeah. totally different medium, but very much, like, attacking this drug trade and this drug enterprise from kind of a multi-level, especially kind of a nuanced kind of perspective. Um, that, that I, I, again, I, I, I'm, I'm tipping my hat a little bit. I think, obviously, this movie here is beyond good, good, probably great, great. You know, I, I, I just really, really oh, the enjoy early this call. movie. Uh, yeah, but I, so I, I, I love the, 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 like you said, that it's not annoying, those kind yeah. of character developments. Can't you for one second imagine that none of this had happened? If my drugs had gone through, what would be the harm? Huh? What would be the harm? A few people get high or are getting high anyway. Your partner's still alive. We don't have to have breakfast together. Don't you see this means nothing? Your whole life is pointless. You're really breaking my heart, man. The worst part about you, Monty. Monty? The worst part about you, Monty, is you realize the futility of what you're doing and you do it anyway. I just think that every character is so well developed and their needs are so, like, uh, you know, they're immediate. So, they're so immediate and they're so tangible. Like, I just thought it was so interesting that even a character as small as Dennis Quaid's character, like playing the family lawyer to Catherine Zeta Jones and her drug dealing husband or drug smuggling husband. He just wants to fuck. Like that's his that's his end game. And that's like that's an interesting need to have compared to Catherine Zeta Jones, who's literally trying to hold her family together. And he's just like putting himself in a position where they can have sex. Yeah. And that's such an interesting sort of thing to watch, like how their relationship devolves. And then he sort of gets his comeuppance at the end. Well, a la Quaid, there are I think one of the great things about this movie, I mean, you have these three major stories, but the the connective tissue, the vignettes, are just dozens and dozens of supporting parts where someone like kind of shows up in a very like brief episodic way and, and sort of tells you like how or why this isn't going to work. I think the best example is probably James Brolin talking about oh, Khrushchev's two letters. Yeah, no, that's I mean, awesome, yeah. It's great. Um, Soderbergh has structured this movie really well. And I think that's the thing I, I really like about Soderbergh movies is that even if you don't always love the choice he makes, he always goes into a movie having a very specific choice that uh, he's decided to project this movie through. And in this way, I mean, you have the narratives and then you have the, the visual stuff, which I think we should talk about. Oh, yeah. So yeah, in Mexico you have like sort of this yellow filter. So cooked. In... What's that? So cooked. Cooked. Everyone's just frying in this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then in sort of the like very governmenty uh, situations, it's this like very serious blue. Yeah. And then you have uh, you've got the green filter with kind of the the, the yeah. teenagers, the kids, especially most of their time spending out like hung out, hanging out in abandoned mansions, just doing copious amounts of drugs. But they've got that kind of green filter, um, kind of done, and again, really in a very subtle way. I mean, you definitely notice it, and obviously, once you see it, you can't unsee it. But it really doesn't feel, say, quite as different as. Um, you know, like a, a true flat, like a flashback scene would look, or something. You know, it becomes it becomes very natural. Well, because yeah. you don't want to have this movie turn into a documentary, 
mm-hmm. you're just like jumping from place to place with needing title cards. So I think it's important to understand which plot line you're in and use the colors, not really to understand location, but almost to understand like plot line. And then like, you know, you have like sort of three quarters of the way in the movie when Benicio del Toro arrives in the United States, suddenly you're seeing Benicio like in the blue. And yeah. it's like a, it's a much different sort of note about a what storyline he's in, but b like what the tenor of this mm. storyline is as compared to everything that was going on in Mexico, where everything was so volatile. Like this is a different space entirely. Yeah. Well, and you kind of get the counter to that too when Catherine Zeta Jones finds herself in Mexico. Right, right, right. Exactly. Who she's in the yellow. Who, truthfully, I believe. I mean, if our theme is you know Americans in Mexico, I believe she is our only American character who goes to Mexico. Yes. Uh, Michael Douglas visits Salazar. Oh, oh that's, that's right. right. I really like, so I like Benjamin Bratt in this. I love Salma Hayek in this. Oh, yeah. Who's oh, yeah. only really in those two scenes. And she's great, too. Yeah. And then what? I can't, you can't say enough about Quaid. Quaid just, <laughs> Quaid's here to fuck. Quality Quaid. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love that Quaid would even take this part. This sleazy, sleazy part. I could, you know, he auditioned for the Michael Douglas part, and they were like, "Why don't you do oh, this?" Yeah. <laughs> and then they're like, "That was adorable, Dennis. We'll throw you this part." <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, and um, what's his name? Uh, the guy who plays Frankie Flowers, our second gay assassin. That's right. That performance is when he when Benicio pushes him out of the van and he runs through the public. Yeah, that's area. horrifying. It's so, what a weird, like, good, I mean, because the whole point, I think, for a lot of, like, I mean, you, the, this movie is aimed at Americans, like, it's it's talking about sort of the, um, the futility and the volatility of the drug war on the Mexican side, but it's aimed at Americans, and, like, just the, to watch him and watch Del Toro and sometimes and be like, I have no idea what they're thinking right now, whereas you always kind of know what Michael Douglas is thinking, but, yeah, those are the moments where it's just, like, I mean, I don't know how I'm supposed to feel about this. Yeah. Like, probably bad. Well, it's one of our biggest issues that we had with both of our first two films today in that you do not have substantial Mexican characters. And here, like, these are people who, I mean, like you said, they're they're enigmatic, you know? I mean, they're, they're really difficult to predict. But at yeah. the same time, like, they are, they're so human. I mean, I think I think even, like, Manolo, uh, Benicio Del Toro's uh, assistant, or, his, uh, or his, his, partner. his partner, yeah, gives a really great performance, but still, uh, you know, shows just such nuance, I think, between all of those various Mexican characters. I mean, even yeah. when you do get someone like Benjamin Bratt who is like clearly doing his like I'm a Mexican drug dealer impression (laughs) it's like it's like done in the context of like oh well Benicio Del Toro is putting up an Academy Award winning performance here so I guess this is fine you know Michael Douglas's performance is like I don't think it's that good but I sort of like that it's not that good because it's it it sort of like folds into the richness of this movie because he's not really that interesting of a character, I would say. Like, I think the daughter's more interesting. And then him being sort of like, it's a symbol, damn it. Like, is kind of what you need to show these sort of like American preconceived notions. And then him being basically the sounding board to hear from sometimes real politicians, like Harry Reid and some other like, right. former senators are in that scene, talk about their varying and like contrasting views on like both sides of drug addiction. And it's like, this, they're not going to get anything done. 
Are we are we good with like a resounding good good? Does anyone have any doubts? Oh, it's a great grade for me over here in uh, Tijuana. <laughs> it's so good, and people should watch yeah. it. It's on Netflix, by the way. It is on Netflix, and uh, I own it on DVD. I don't know if that really affects <laughs> That's anyone. That's the most other than glowing like... endorsement there is. Uh, I think now is the t- I think now is the time for uh, closing anecdotes, plans for the rest of the trip. What's going down? Well, I feel like you know watching these films has really opened my eyes to um, oh god, just how to the pueblo, just to the pueblo. Yeah, no, to like the idea of we are also like we're at this all-inclusive, like very fake resort, like right on the water here, and like we're not actually getting any sort of culture out of. you know, behaving this way and staying in this place while, of course, like, the hundreds of workers that they have running around at 24 hours a day are, like, probably working for exploitative wages. But also, we're very drunk. <laughs> so, like, it's difficult to, like, really get behind any, you know, sort of active change. <laughs> A trenchant sociopolitical point. Um, <laughs> well, I do hope you have fun. Uh, all we have is each other, guys. Go to a park. Everybody loves baseball. Thanks very much for having me, guys. I had a really great time. Absolutely. Oh, thanks for doing it. Yeah, it was almost worth watching The Mexican. <laughs> almost. Sorry, um, guys. Before, yeah, Chance, why don't you uh, yell out some of the things that people should do? And oh, then say I some think of the things that close. I say? Say some of the things that you say, and then I think we should end with Brent doing his Benicio Del Toro. <laughs> I would love nothing more. I'll try to say them as fast as I can. Uh, listeners, thank you so much for spending this uh, spending this time with us. You can find all past episodes of the show on BeRealGuys.com, a wonderful website made by Michael Todd that houses our archive. You can listen to them directly on your phone via SoundCloud, Stitcher, Overcast, Google Play Music, iTunes, of course, uh, send us an email at berealguys.com, two E's like a film reel, and follow us on Twitter at the same handle. All those things. Check it out. We would love you to. Let us uh, let us know if you want anything. Um, but otherwise, uh, <laughs> let's toss it to Benicio. What are people going to want? I don't, I don't know if I want people to want things. <laughs> if you want anything podcast-related. Okay. Maybe, maybe they would like more of my Benicio del Toro. <laughs> Maybe they like baseball or lights to keep the kids safe because people love parks and baseball and be real guys.